someday, and it's not going to be in five years, but 20, 30, 40 years from now, you buy a battery, you pay a couple of bucks uh, as, a, as a deposit, you bring it back in, that battery, everything is recycled. The plastic, the lead, 50 years from now, no one's going to be talking about, we're opening up more lithium mines. You won't need it anymore. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada by Professor Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, good to see you in person, my friend. Good to see you in person, Scotty, uh, from the other side of the street. That's right. And we're up here in Toronto at the Eurasia Group BMO Can- U.S.-Canada Summit. And it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. and But it's great to have this pop-up studio uh, and... I'm excited about the conversation we're about to have because uh, critical minerals, lithium, electric vehicle batteries are top of mind, not only in this conference, but in the president's visit to Canada and in our economy generally. So I'm excited about our guest, Chris, and maybe you could introduce him. Oh, it's a pleasure. So uh, Jonathan Evans is director and president and CEO of Lithium Americas. He serves um, more. He's been more than 20 years in the operations and general management experience across businesses of various sizes and industry applications. Previously, he served as vice president and general manager for the lithium division of FMC Corporation in the U.S. and as chief operating officer of Diversitech Corporation, a portfolio company of the private equity group Permira. Permira. John uh, has also held executive management position roles at Arista Life Sciences and Amory Corporation and General Electric. So pretty uh, pretty distinguished corporate career. Thank you very much for joining us. John. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Scotty. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, we're glad to have you. And uh, this podcast will air after the summit, but as we're recording it, it's right before you go on stage. So maybe give us a little preview of what your message is here uh, today at the Canada-U.S. Summit. I, I think the some of the speakers that started, whether it was Ian Bremmer or Premier Ford, uh, really hit the nail on the head. I and mean, we've had really a lifetime opportunity here, as you see industry, uh, especially the automotive industry, transforming. And we have all the ingredients in the U.S. and Canada to do this. Actually, if we don't do this, uh, it, it's, it's uh, our own choice. Uh, the critical minerals, the technology, uh, the leading automotive manufacturers globally, uh, we can be successful. So let me let me ask the blonde questions, Chris. I usually do that. You ask the others. So lithium. Tell us about lithium. What is it? What do you use it for? Um, and and what does your company do? So lithium is. I, I like to say uh, the blood and the batteries. That's re- literally what it does. The you mm-hmm. know the ions move from uh, one pole to the other in the battery, and the electrons, of course, fuels the circuit. So it's the critical ingredient to make all lithium-ion batteries work. Hence lithium-ion batteries. It's the uh, uh, has the highest energy density. It's the lightest metal. So by its virtue of where it sits in the periodic table, it's very difficult to replace, especially since we all lead these mobile lives uh, with uh, uh, smartphones and laptop computers and now, of course, uh, electric vehicles and delivery trucks and everything else that's coming out. So uh, it's a critical piece. Uh, lithium is needed in that in a refined form. So it's different than iron ore or coal or other commodities. Uh, once you take the material off the ground, really the focus and really the main capital uh, density of these projects or, or capital costs around the processing of it. What leaves the facility that 
we're building in Nevada is essentially a pharmaceutical grade product that can be put into a cathode and a battery. So it's, it's complicated. I'm not a mining person. I'm actually a chemicals and materials yeah. person. And if you look at my background, I spent the bulk of my career in, in chemicals and, and specialty materials. The mining component of what we do is actually quite small. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, with that, you need both. So I've been, I've heard lots of things we should do processing here and so forth. It doesn't work. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough, I hate to say, to remember the Arab oil uh, crisis and embargo where we had lots of refining capacity between the U.S. and Canada. Uh, in the U.S., we didn't have enough crude oil. So if you don't feed those refineries, you don't have a product you can use at the end of the day. So you have to solve the profit holistically. Luckily, between the U.S. and Canada, we have. And you're, to that. yeah, that's helpful. And your company in particular, so you both dig it out of the ground and you convert it into something that goes into manufacturing. You do both of those things. Exactly. And where, what's the footprint of the company, John? We have uh, the largest project that we have in North America is in Nevada. And then we have a joint venture and another greenfield project in Argentina. Uh, and we're actually uh, in a, uh, an agreement with a company that we partially own that's focused on uh, lithium exploration and development in Western Ontario and in Manitoba. Oh, interesting. Okay, Chris, I just have one more question, then I'll, I'll turn it to you. Um, but sticking with my very basic questions, one of the, I flew here today from Washington, D.C. to Toronto, and one of the things that you have to declare when you're getting on a plane is that you're not going to put a lithium-ion battery in your checked baggage. And so uh, why is that? There's a lot of energy stored in them. Uh, if you go to a gigafactory or the gigafactory that uh, Panasonic and Tesla has, you'll see the amount of expense and design that's gone into actually to, where they put the cell storage. There's a tremendous amount of energy that are stored in those batteries. So fire control and suppression, uh, how they're handled, um, how they're actually individually packaged to make sure that there's not a chain reaction. Uh, you're, you're literally holding a lot of energy in your hand with a recharged battery. So you have to be careful. There are different kinds of batteries that have a lower risk. You're hearing a lot about lithium iron phosphate or lithium iron uh, manganese phosphate, which you're hearing a lot about it in Canada uh, and in the U.S., um, the deal with Ford, with Tesla, potentially around this technology. I want to make sure the audience understands that technology actually came from the U.S. and Canada. It was patented and protected uh, for years. Uh, Of course, it wasn't um, the patent wasn't defended in China. So that technology actually was built on. So the tech that you're seeing from CATL and BYD actually started right here in this continent, as was the lithium-ion battery, which was developed at the University of Texas. And and that's an age-old story and something that we worry about, which is um, IP theft, intellectual property theft. And that's one of the things we worry about with China, because they do steal ideas and replicate them, right? I mean, I guess that's what you're referring to. Yeah, I think Senator Manchin uh, quoted that himself. That's uh, right. <laughs> it's well-known. It's well-known. Yes. Well, Scott, you asked the blonde questions. I asked the great questions. <laughs> so uh, I was going to ask you about pricing. You know, this is a, there is a commodity element here and China in the past has flooded the market when they wanted to sink the prices and wreck projects or been willing to withhold to make a political statement, famously 2011 over the Senkaku Daiyu Islands with the Japan. How do we create the market conditions so that we can see this industry grow? Like a little bit of the stability piece and I hate to ask this, but what's the role the governments have in Canada, the U.S. to kind of create those conditions if this is something that we want to see? You don't hate to ask that. 
Well, I do. But so I'm old enough to remember that industrial policy used to be a bad thing. And so I'm trying for those listeners who also have gray hair to say, okay, what, how, why is this necessary? And where does it, I'm not going to pontificate. I want to hear what you have to say, John. Well, I think firstly, to understand that China doesn't have a lot of lithium resources. So that's part of the issue, right? They're out shopping around the world, uh, investing in projects early and bringing the material back to China to process. So you always hear about the processing piece. They are uh, tapping their own lithium resources, but uh, there's stories about that as well, which are true that they're, they're very low quality resources. There is a bit of a, of a, a pricing floor with that that I think actually we've reached now that's been, been in the press, but I, I do know the math and I agree with that. So they're in the same situation as we are. We're actually in a better situation in that the U.S. and Canada are essentially untapped. We haven't explored very much in mm-hmm. Canada, and there's lots of uh, spodumene in Canada and the Canadian Shield. And there are, are deposits like uh, the Thacker Pass Project, which is a sedimentary deposit in the U.S., in the in the West. So we've chosen not to do it. Uh, we, we've seeded uh, the processing. And, and this all started with the offshoring of portable electronics. So the industry already started mm-hmm. pretty much. They had the infrastructure there. And uh, whether it's lithium or rare earths, a lot of those materials, Australia is the largest supplier to China for raw materials for lithium. Mm-hmm. So it, it's... Uh, they have the same issues we do. They've just been much more overt uh, about going after them because they have their own industrial policies. We very well know. Uh, they have the Chinese. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and now the U.S. has an industrial policy, which I applaud the administration. This is no different than the interstate highways projects in the U.S. or how the semiconductor was born You know, with, with uh, uh, collaboration with, with the, the U.S. government. It's important. The government has to send a message as to what they support for the business community. And the business community wants to help because at the end of the day, actually, this is what consumer wants was a good investment. It's good for all. Right. Uh, it helps preserve jobs. It helps uh, preserve our national and economic security, energy independence, which we're seeing uh, very much now uh, with uh, the illegal invasion of Ukraine. And thankfully, it was a, a warmer than expected winter in, in yeah. Europe. Uh, whereas who supplied a lot of that oil and gas? It was the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yeah. You know, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about, um, a little more about where you find lithium. And in particular, I've heard recently, Chris and I do some work with the province of Alberta, and they have all kinds of resources. Canada has lots, is blessed with many, many resources of all kinds. So in Saskatchewan, we think about uranium. And in Alberta, we typically think about oil and gas, but they have, um, they have these saline, aquifers that have lithium floating is that right like are you involved in that or what's your what's your assessment of that of that opportunity so there's three uh so big classifications you have hard rock which is more traditional mining where the the lithium is contained in a certain form and in, in a traditional like hard rock type of operation you have brine based deposits these are called continental brines so uh or oil field brines these exist actually in the u.s as well it's called the Smackover formation which is in arkansas and, and in that region of the u.s there's actually a company down there working on that so yes uh it, it exists and then you have sedimentary deposits which is the type we have in nevada which is sediment because it was left over of an ancient volcanic caldera and there's about a kilometer deep, deep thick layer of very rich uh, lithium containing ore that sits at the surface or right below so it, it's almost i hate to use the analogy of oil and gas but you have different types of deposits whether it's on land and, and sort of low cost for saudi arabia whether it's deep water offshore or, or tight shale tight shale yeah you, know, you have all these different variations with the same material it's just how you recover them uh, is different. Actually, how you process them is fairly similar because what you're trying to do once you process it is to 
so to remove all the impurities and get to a pure form in a form such that it can be put into a, a battery. So yes, Canada has many resources and I'll say North America has many resources. Well, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, um, I know Chris has some more questions uh, to ask. And, and I want to talk a little bit more about public policy. And if you could design the world um, of public policy, what, what would you have the policymakers do? So uh, we'll be right back. The Wilson Center's Canada Institute is a proud co-producer of the Canusa Street Podcast. For more insights and analysis from the world's leading think tank on Canada-U.S. relations, please visit us on the web at www.wilsoncenter.org. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. I'm Christopher Sands, and I'm here with Scotty Greenwood. And our guest today is Jonathan Evans from Lithium America. Scotty, we're just about to ask him a question about policy. Public policy. So um, I'm learning a lot about where you find lithium and how you develop it and why it's important in, in our in our daily life and in our strategic competition in the world. Um, I wanted to ask you, and and Chris started to ask you this. Uh, I want to dig into it more. If you could design the ideal public policy for the industry and for your business, um, what would it look in Canada, the United States, what would it look like? Or is it already, is it already there? I think a lot of the steps are coming together now. Uh, the U S has a industrial policy of which critical minerals is a part along with batteries, pharmaceuticals, semiconductors, Canada has, uh, some of the same elements, which are coming together, uh, from the, the Canadian government. And they, they focus on whether it be, um, permitting and, and the permitting process itself, Whereas I, I don't think... Are you good with the permitting process? Because if you are, you're the only CEO I've met that isn't frustrated with the pace. <laughs> we're, we're fully permitted. So, and so we, you're and, good. Yes. <laughs> okay. and, and of course, uh, the U.S. is very typical. Every project's appealed. We went through appeal process. The whole, yeah. How long did it take? The whole process together took about four years. Okay. Uh, and it took uh, about seven to 10 years before that to prepare for permitting. So it's a very lengthy process. Uh, we talk about lithium deposits. There's many. The cost to develop those is different. And then you have that whole roadmap of how you get it permitted. So there, there's the formal piece of permitting. There is the community engagement piece, which is oft not talked about. I think it is by the NGOs, but that's actually part of the permitting process, but one that uh, I think both companies and the government alike support and is often not talked about the good things that are brought with projects like this right. uh, and the strong permitting regulations, which are already in place. I don't think anybody's, uh, I know nobody's asking for environmental regulations to be uh, loosened. They shouldn't. To your earlier point, what the frustration is, is that the process is unpredictable. And uh, the permitting process, the permitting process yeah. in terms yeah. of when you get answers back, uh, you know, when you normally you order something and it says expected delivery is X, right? It might be off by a day or a week or whatever else. Uh, but you have some, you, you know, pretty much when you're going to get it where permitting is, you don't have that. It's sort of open and it's difficult to attract private capital when people don't understand what the, when they're going to get a payback, what's the time value of money. The government has stepped in in the U S and they're doing the same now in Canada to help uh, buttress that a little bit, whether it be of low cost loans, to the department of energy, uh, or in Canada, you have EDC or grants that are coming out now to help companies like that company in Alberta, who I know quite well, or my own company, who's tapping the, uh, us treasury and department of energy to help with a low cost loan because private capital, they don't want to get involved because there's been horror stories. You have projects right. that are in permitting for 10 years between the formal permitting and then it's in the U.S. The appeals process is unregulated. So, well, and once you get through that, you might face litigation because we know, we know how litigious the United so States is. You yeah. go through an appeal, 
uh, appeal to an appeal. Uh, it depends who the judge is. Can more plaintiffs join? Actually, that uh, uh, you know, it's it's kind of hard to say. You're not aware of something that's been through a permitting process for three or four years, and now more plaintiffs want to join. Yeah, um, it has to have some boundaries around it uh, where it's a predictable process, and I think that's where permitting reform really needs to go. And that. Look, after two years, the answer is yes or no. And if it's no, this is what you need to do. Come back when you have it done versus stringing out forever. And there's no predictability at all. On, I actually, and I'll, I'll say this, even though I'm taking advantage of it, the government shouldn't have to pay for this. This is a, you have, how many people are here? Hundreds of people. I was at the SAFE conference last week. There was hundreds of people. You go to these industry conferences, there's thousands of people. People want to invest in this. People want to work in this sector. They see this is where the world's going. It's like, and a version of tech. Uh, so there's money that's there, but people are unsure if they don't understand any predictability on permitting. They're like, wow, this is going to take forever. My money's dead here for a while, so let's find something else. So they wait. And that's where governments step in to help accelerate that. Well, and we were at the SAFE conference together, uh, what used to be known as Securing America's Future Energy. And uh, it was a terrific conference in Washington from uh, minerals to markets was the theme. And Senator Manchin um, was pretty adamant about permitting reform and the battle he's having with the White House uh, and members of his party, the other party, about how to get there. So, um, you know, interesting let's, let's see how it works. Canada has the same as the U.S. You have Western Canada and you have Eastern Canada. Same thing in the U.S. Western Canada, Western U.S., people make their living through uh, living off the land, essentially, mm-hmm. natural, yeah. natural resources, timber, coal, oil, mining. Agriculture. Uh, agriculture, exactly. Cattle. Uh, and uh, in the East, we don't do that supposedly anymore, but but we uh, have the benefits all here because we don't really think about where our stuff comes from. And a lot of our fellow countrymen, that's how they make their living. The Western part of Canada and the U.S. isn't all a national park. Right. Uh, people have to make a living. So you see that in Congress in the U.S., Senator Manchin's from a natural resource state, uh, obviously. And it's a bigger issue. It's, not, it's just not mining or, or minerals processing. It's pipelines, windmills. Hydro projects, uh, they're all wrapped up in the same process where I'll, I'll call put critical minerals as part of infrastructure for uh, North America. Look at the pipeline battles in Canada. Oh, yeah. Government well, look at, uh, sorry, Chris, I keep pointing to Chris to say take over and then I keep jumping in. But just on that point, uh, while President Biden was in Ottawa two weeks ago, the U.S. are urging Canadians, Canada to move faster on all of these kinds of projects, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers saw fit to delay a tunnel project um, in the Straits of Mackinac for for Enbridge, which is um, delivering oil and gas to a whole region of the U.S. and Canada and has a project to make it safer, and yet they're delayed by another two years. So I don't, uh, I think that was coincidental, um, left hand and right hand, not really coordinating, but yeah, we, we see, we see it all over the, all over the map with any big project, right, Chris? Absolutely. Well, and I wanted to follow up on that because I think a lot of the people who have a sincere concern about the environment and, and so on don't appreciate, but with the processing, the handling of, of lithium and some of these other, um, important critical minerals and rare earths, you have to be very careful because you don't want a negative environmental impact. And I, I, I don't know the industry as well as you do, and, and you have a chemistry and materials background. But when we when we look at China, when we look at other places where these minerals are produced and processed, we look at the Democratic Republic of Congo and so on, we're about as conscientious as you can be in terms of this. And, and I don't think it's appreciated that it's probably more cost, but we try to do it right. And it's important because if we don't do it, 
who would be buying from people who are destroying the planet on the other side of the world? Uh, is, is that too strong? No, it's right. Very much, and I think Robbie Diamond said this week, there's a bit of uh, see no evil, hear no evil. Yeah. I don't want to know where this stuff comes from, although I'll complain about it. Uh, we can do it better here. We have very, very high standards here uh, at our own project. If you sort of add in things that were uh, needed to be done or, or I want to get ahead of where I think regulate, regulate, regulations might come from, it's it's over $400 million of capital costs, whether that be emissions control, whether it be lining for a waste rock area that technically isn't required, but but it's the right, better to be safe than sorry in sure. the future. Um, recycling of water. We recycle over 85% of the water we use. Each drop is used more than seven times. Really? Uh, all of these things uh, up front, you design that in the project. There's a cost to it at the end sure. of the day. But to your point, uh, we have higher standards here. It's not we, standards aren't the same across the the world. Even permitting, some countries you can come in and you want to build a project, and it's eminent domain. You're going to move tomorrow. We're building an airport here. That doesn't happen in North America. Uh, we live in a democracy here, and people are free to speak, and there's a process for that. Same with appeals. You don't hear about appeals in some of the countries that you listed off. You don't hear anything. Right. Uh, it's part of a national mandate in those countries. I think we have a national or international mandate, I should say, between the U.S. and Canada as well. But you have to have both groups willing to sit down and be constructive as opposed to my position is going to be, I don't want this no matter what. In the case of lithium, you're not going to have 50 operations around the U.S. and Canada in the next 10 years. It costs billions and billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. There's all the process that you have to go through with permitting. There's a limit how much the government can handle at one particular time. I think I've quoted this number before. If we have six or eight of these process projects uh, by 2030 in North America, we're doing pretty well. And I think the thing to forget... How many do we have now? One. Uh, there's one in Nevada that's actually... That's yours. No, no, that's one that's been operating. The only one that's been operating continuous since early 60s is for Albemarle. Okay. Uh, there was a, a, a mine that's opened, reopened again in Ontario now that's just started to produce. It was a one that started, shuttered, started, and now it's shuttered, and then it started again. Uh, and there's a third that um, they're looking to push into operation over the next two or three years. It's peanuts. Yeah. It's nothing. Uh, very, very difficult. Well, you know, this, this has been, um, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation and it's in a technical area I don't know a lot about. If you were speaking to our listeners, Canadians and Americans and, and trying to leave a message with them from being on the industry side, what do, what do people need to know about the Canada-US relationship about the production of lithium and the goals that we have? Is there anything that you, you sort of flag that we need to be more educated about here? Well, firstly, uh, it would drop the defeatism. It's too late. Uh, you know, we can't do this. We, we're actually blessed on this continent with uh, the natural resources and actually the, the technology already to be successful. I think I said in the beginning, if we choose not to do this, that's our own decision. It's yeah. not because we don't have the resources to do it. Um, it's not going to happen tomorrow. So the policies that are putting in place that the U.S. government, the Canadian government putting in place, you know, folks, we're not going fast enough. Well, some of the largest infrastructure projects that we enjoy today took years and years and years. Ten years from now, it's going to look a lot different. And that's how our governments work. It's turning a ship in the harbor. It takes actually over multiple administrations. But we get to where we need to go. We live in big countries, uh, and you can't turn in a dime. But you have to start somewhere, and we've started. And I think uh, another thing is that with the manufacturers, we all are neighbors with everybody. I live here as well. We, people are committed to doing the right thing. I, I gave you a couple of examples of extra 
or above and beyond things that are integrated. People look at what happened 50 or, or even 20 years ago. A lot of regulations have changed. I, I use the example yeah. all the time of, I remember cars when there was no airbags and no oh, shoulder yeah, belts and so forth. You <laughs> yeah. can't build a car like that today. You can't right. build an operation like we have today because it's essentially illegal. So the standards are much higher. And I think the other piece, and I pulled that into an earlier, you're not going to have a whole bunch of these. And at some point, you won't need them anymore because unlike oil and gas, these are recyclable. Right. Someday, and it's not going to be in five years, and enough batteries, it won't even be in 10 years, but 20, 30, 40 years from now, we don't mine a lot of lead anymore. Uh, you put your, you buy a battery, you pay a couple of bucks uh, as, a, as a deposit, you bring it back in. That battery, everything is recycled. The plastic, the lead, it's going to be the same here. Um, 50 years from now, no one's going to be talking about, we're opening up more lithium mines. You won't need it anymore. That's amazing. You know, um, and I love to end on that note because it's not about... Um, cradle to grave in manufacturing. It's about a circular economy. And, and that's something that, that's an important concept. I'm glad you, I'm glad you left that with us and also a sense of optimism because, um, it's, it's, it's good to hear that too. President Biden talked about, um, Canada and the United States are about possibility. And I think that's, you're seizing the possibility here in North America. So anyway, thank you for joining us and we, we will see you on stage downstairs in just a little bit. Thank you. Chris, how cool is it to have a conversation here in Toronto with an American running a Canadian company with uh, an essential critical mineral in the United States and in North America? I think it was a terrific learning experience. It was amazing. And I and what, what was great about Jonathan Evans is that he talked to us about chemistry, material science, that very technical side in language. I think everyone on Canusa Street can really grasp that this is a historic opportunity for both countries. And the private sector is leading, which is which is a good story. Well, and as we heard last week in Washington from diplomats from around the world, particularly Australia and Chile, what the United States has done in terms of its investments with the Inflation Reduction Act and the semiconductor, the chips bill, and also infrastructure, it's changed the arithmetic. So the U.S. government is putting a historic amount of money into this clean energy transition. And so companies like John's are really availing themselves of that. And that's that's meaningful. I think it is, absolutely. And I, I, I was joking about industrial policy, but what's really interesting about what's happening in Canada and the US is they're avoiding the biggest risk of industrial policy, which is that government picks winners and doesn't always pick them well, and you end up spending a lot of money and wasting it. What they've done is create an incentive structure that allows the private sector to do what it does. And the market would solve this problem eventually on demand, but what's what we want is to move that deadline forward to get it done quicker. And so by not favoring one company or creating a national lithium uh, company in the United States or Canada, we're getting a good result through very smart investment and leadership by the government. Well, and Chris, I I always hesitate to disagree with you, especially and on this one, but the market, and as a business council, it's crazy for me to say this, but the market really would not solve this critical minerals issue, in my opinion, because um, the market cannot compete with non-market economies like China. And that is the, that is the reason you have this government intervention because China, as you said, um, fl floods the market when it wants to, uh, depresses prices um, of these commodities, and also 
uh, as we know, and people should Google this. If you don't know about this, Google um, what's happening in China with critical minerals, because there are literally toxic rivers. Um, there are people whose lives have been lost in this in this very challenging environment. And so we do it right here in North America, but that's expensive and government is now uh, stepping up. I think that's really important. Both sides of Canusa Street are free markets with governments that are trying to get us where we need to go. It's it's a great uh, it's a great story. Public private collaboration, hopefully at its best, and hopefully at the pace of what we need to have progress. So we shall see. Absolutely. Well, we'll see and we'll follow this very closely from here on Canusa Street. Sounds good. See you, my friend. See you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify.